glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout 2020, we have been reading through the Bible, and it has culminated to this moment where we open up the New Testament and see how God enters history in a personal way. It makes it unmistakably clear that He is with us, He is relentlessly on our side, and doing everything possible to rescue us. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we learn how to live and be people who love sacrificially, seek justice, and extend God's mercy. We're excited to dive into this series together and would enjoy it even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. A reading from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will find him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word of the Lord. To those of you in the room, those of you joining us on the live stream, as we encounter now the risen Jesus Christ, the Lord be with you. The most fantastic claim that Christians believe is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It has, from the very start, uh, called our credibility into question. Paul, the apostle, around 50 AD, preaching in Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, Acts chapter 17. Mars Hill was a place like uh, the tattered cover where authors would come and promote their books. Philosophers would come and promote their new ideas. And uh, Paul, the text says, preached Jesus and the resurrection. And then the text says, after he was done, they called him a babbler. It's the Greek word spermologos, which means seed pecker. They thought he was like a bird pecking at crumbs of truth, an intellectual pretender writing in the wink-wink column. Several years ago, I was on a flight back to Denver from Atlanta, and I had the good fortune to sit next to a doctor from the Center for Disease Control. And we had an amazing conversation. I've never forgotten it. And uh, at one point, I just asked her, uh, what, and this is pre-COVID, obviously, what is the most effective thing we can do to prevent the spread of disease? And she said, wash your hands. It's that simple. 
Well, she uh, was not a follower of Jesus. She didn't grow up in the church, so she was very intrigued by she discovered I was a pastor and what that life was like and began asking questions about Christianity. And she said, what do you think is the most important point of Christianity? And I said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if it happened, his claims are true. And uh, he is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. And she kind of put her head down and then up and then smiled. And I've never forgotten the look on her face. And she said, it's that simple. Welcome to Love This Book. We are this year preaching the Bible cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, and today we talk about the meaning of Christ's resurrection. We're on a 14er this morning, in the snow, a 14er this morning, as we encounter the risen Jesus. I'd like to just ask a couple of questions and have you come along with me. First, what happened? Second, Why in the world would we ever believe it? And third, what does it mean if it's true? What happened? Well, what I'd like to do is go back to Friday, Good Friday. Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in the dark, utterly forsaken. Jesus had made claims to be Messiah, the Son of God, and He backfilled those claims with miracles, where he displayed his control over the unseen world, casting demons out of people. He displayed his control over the seen world and nature when he would quiet with his vocal cords a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee or, or uh, play with the energy matter equation using five loaves of bread and two fish to feed a crowd of over 20,000 people. He also displayed his control over the physical nature of the human body when he would heal people of diseases and call people back uh, into life who had died, Jesus. When he taught, the text again and again would say, he spoke as one having authority. He, He talked at times about he presided over creation like he intended us. And then he said a number of times, which really must, if you were in the audience, would have blown our minds. He said, at the end of all time, I will sit as judge over every human life, and you will have to give account to him for what you've been given. And uh, did that light just come on? All right. <laughs> Wanted to be sure I wasn't seeing, uh, seeing the same things you're seeing here this morning. Now, he also, uh, when he, he would uh, pre- preach these things, at times go and say, you're Your sins are forgiven. And you and I both know that the only person who can forgive sins is God. And he would say, I'm the one who can connect you to my Father. And I can give your life a sense of mission where you too can with me walk and proclaim my kingdom, my reign and rule on this earth. Well, as you can imagine, those kinds of claims, those kinds of actions, they did not sit well with most people. In fact, most people not only didn't agree, but they wanted it stopped. And so, because Jesus had so upset his religious authorities and creating chaos, it finally worked that he was against the peace of Rome. And so, Rome and the religion authorities, in tandem with a sham trial, they executed him. 
as a radical activist. Mark's intention at the end of chapter 15 is to make sure that you and I know that Jesus was dead. Joseph of Arimathea, he names names, Mark does. Joseph of Arimathea, who uh, paradoxically was a member of the high Jewish council and yet a secret follower of Jesus. He goes and he asks Pilate for permission to take the body and put Jesus in his own tomb. And Pilate, whose neck was on the line with the Roman government for, you know, these kinds of proceedings, he has to be sure Jesus is dead. And so he asks the Roman soldier in charge. And the Roman soldier in charge, the centurion, says, yes, He's dead. And you need to know Roman soldiers, they were professional killers, especially at this level. There's not one instance in Roman history where anyone survives a crucifixion. And then Mark says, and there was also uh, some women, and he names the two women who followed Jesus' body from the cross to the tomb, and they knew exactly where he was buried. But Mark names names of people bearing witness. Jesus is dead. And then it's the Sabbath. It's Saturday. Sabbath means seven. Sabbath means cease. Sabbath means everything accomplished and complete. And isn't it interesting that perhaps this Saturday, as far as we know, was the only day in 2020 years where not one person believed Jesus was alive. And then it's Sunday. The first day of the week, a new dawn, a new era, a new time. O dark hundred, women come to the tomb, and Mark names them. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. They come to the tomb. They know where it is, and they come carrying ancient Jewish burial customs tell us probably 70 pounds of spices to finish wrapping in, in the wrapping of Jesus' body to cover the decay. Their greatest concern is not carrying that weight. Their greatest concern is how they're going to move the rock from the entrance to the tomb set there in the track. And when they left, Matthew tells us that there was a, a, a squad of Roman soldiers there and who were guarding the tomb, but something had happened, Matthew says, to frighten them off. They're gone. And when the women walk up, they notice the stone is moved away from the opening of the tomb. And they kind of look in from a distance and they see, it says in the text, a, a man dressed in white and causing fear. That's code for angel. And the angel says this to the women, don't be alarmed. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I think it's just six and seven, Tara. Yeah, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Okay, what happened? Here's the story. Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, dead, 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 risen. That's the story. That's what happened. Why would you believe that? Well, let me just throw a couple of nuances from Mark's writing and the way he wrote this. And I want to talk first about proper nouns and about adjective stoppers. Proper nouns. Look at verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome 
bought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. The first responders at the tomb are women. That's stunning. That should not be. In a deeply patriarchal culture, women were neglected, overlooked, and they were not perceived to be credible witnesses. In fact, in both Jewish and Roman culture, women were not allowed into the law courts to be witnesses. And so Mark records that women are the first witnesses of the empty tomb. The point the point is that if Mark was trying to write a credible piece of fiction that would be launched as a myth or a fable to capture people in some kind of false movement, the last thing he would have done would have put women as first responders. Not only about the women and their proper names, it's about the men. What about the men? Exactly. Where are they? The founding fathers of Christianity do not look so good here. Mark earlier had said in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, I'm going to Jerusalem. I will die there. Three days later, I'll rise again. He said it once, twice, three times. Explicitly. Now you would think if the disciples had a clue, they would have had a sign-up sheet for taking shifts to sit in a lawn chair by the tomb to see what was going to happen. But no. The point The resurrection was as inconceivable to the first witnesses as it would be to you and I. Thought experiment. If you're here this morning, you're not persuaded by the resurrection. What would it take to persuade you? What kind of objective evidence would you require to prove that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, it would be the same amount of evidence that proved to the first witnesses that he'd risen from the dead. That's the first verse. Proper names. Go to the eighth verse. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is where Mark's original writing ends at verse 8. And that's the end of the book. Now you have to really kind of think, well, that's a strange way to end the gospel. Look at the adjectives. Trembling, bewildered, afraid. What's Mark doing? I suggest to you that what he's doing is saying, just as the original witnesses had to make up their minds, because this shocked them, you and I have to make up our minds about whether or not we're going to believe in a suffering, crucified, and risen Messiah who came to demonstrate the love of the Father's heart by dying in our place for our sins and rising from the dead to promise us life. We too, like they, have to make up our minds about whether Easter happened. Now, there are many in our culture who do not believe that it happened. And I would suspect that most of them have never really done a thorough search. They're not persuaded by evidence. They're just persuaded by the notion that these things can't happen. It's like a fairy tale on a flying carpet. 
It's time for you to stop being a child. Children believe in fairy tales. Grow up. You and I both know, let's accept reality, that we're healed by random blind forces that have never had us in mind, and when we die, we're done. Come on. Well, what I'd like to suggest about that story is that it's also a faith position. That that takes as much faith to believe as it does a, a resurrection. My point is that you and I have never lived a moment without believing in a story that explains where we come from and where we're going. Never. Every breath we take is in faith, trusting a story. And the questions are, have you done research to decide if your story is true? And where do you get your information? So let me just quickly say this, a plug for a course that's coming up November 2nd it starts. It's a course we love here at Waterstone and offer several times a year. It's called Alpha. And Alpha is a place to study the beginnings and the ends. It's you know, not only how we got here, where we're going, but this guy in the middle, Jesus, and what he has to say. And one of the lectures in Alpha, not lectures, it's actually a great film that you would watch, a short film on the life of Jesus. And it talks about the historicity of the Bible, that the Bible is the most well-documented ancient uh, book that we have in the history of the world. There's nothing like the Bible and the evidence we have for its historicity. So I would recommend Alpha to you if you want to explore these things further. Those are just a couple of thoughts about why we might be persuaded to at least look into the evidence that Mark gives of Jesus' resurrection, his proper nouns and his stunning adjectives. It's time for you and I to check in on our story and what we believe. But let me just, for the remainder of our time, excitedly talk about what it means if it's true. What does the resurrection mean? Three things. First, it speaks to our past. Our past, sins forgiven. If you go back to verse 7 in our text, something very interesting. But go, the angel says, and tell his disciples, and who? Peter. Why do you think Peter is singled out? That, that Jesus wants to go and ga- into Galilee and meet Peter. Could it be that it's in light of his stunning betrayal just a few days prior? When at the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And all of them said, you know, is it I? Is it I? And Peter, as Peter usually did, said, Lord, I would never, be- I'll go to the death before I betray you. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter denies Jesus, that he even knows him, that he's even connected to him. Well, what happens when they go into Galilee? By the way, Galilee, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem, it's where most of the disciples were from and where Jesus grew up. They're out there fishing. You still got to make a living. Peter, six other disciples, they're fishing. Rough morning, didn't catch anything. Suddenly, they're about to wrap everything up. There's a guy from the shore. Hey, cast the throw net on the right side. The throw net on the right side. They do. Pull it in. What they later count, 153 fish. Holy cow. Holy fish. John, who's writing this, John 21, immediately remembers an incident in Luke 5, immediately makes up his mind, that's Jesus. This happened to us before. We're reliving history. Jesus did that with us before. 
And then Peter gets it, and he makes a run for the shore. And there he discovers Jesus has bread ready and fish, and he says, bring some more fish over. We're going to have a, a meal. And some point during that meal on the beach, the Sea of Galilee, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, Lord, you know, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And then a second time he asks, uh, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, I do. And he says, Jesus, feed my lambs. And then the third time, and it says in the text that the third time, it hurt Peter. Peter, do you love me? You know I do, Lord. Feed my land. What, what's going on here? Is, is Jesus rubbing Peter's nose in it? Making him feel shame and making him feel like totally, totally guilty for what he didn't know? What Jesus is doing here is restoring Peter and saying to Peter, in each of the times you failed me, I meet you with my love. And now, Peter, that you've really seen who I am and that you've really seen the heart of God is love, now in your broken, in your weak state, you are finally prepared to lead my church. And he restores him to lead the most powerful movement ever seen on our globe. The goal of this life is not to have your names on the most possible people's lips. The goal of this life is to have your name and Larry and your name on the lips who can call to us from the other side of the grave and say, I will forgive your sins. I love you. I am with you. I am coming for you always, relentlessly. That's the goal of this life. The resurrection speaks to our past, that our sins are forgiven and God meets us and encounters us in love always. Second thing that the resurrection means is it speaks to our future. In verse 6, we read, don't be alarmed, you're looking for Jesus, he has risen, he is not here. The resurrection speaks to our problem with the what question. The what. What happens when we die? Once in a while, and this may tell you more about me than you really want to know, is I like to read a little uh, rag journal called The Onion. If any of you have ever read it, you know it's a very sarcastic kind of eyebrow-raising thing where they just say off-the-wall things to get attention and readers. A few weeks back, they had, during the pandemic, this headline. You know, it's not true. It's fake. It's fake news. But uh, it's funny news. The headline read this way. Even during the pandemic, everyone who does not get the coronavirus will still die. <laughs> Doctors are discouraged. <laughs> you know, when I was ordained, 
I took vows of ministry. And one of the vows that I had to say and own and confess in front of my congregation then was that I would help prepare the saints for a good death. What's a good death? Well, a good death is when you die at peace with God and at peace with family and friends, at peace with your own life and how it was lived and even more how it was forgiven. But the other side of that vow is that I am responsible before God to this congregation that I serve to remind you that the death rate is 100%. That you are dying. What will you do with that? I, re- I remember reading a few years back about a Benedictine monastery in New Mexico called Christ in the Desert. And uh, what they have at this monastery was the prayer chapel where you worship. And then you have to walk a path to the rectory where you eat. And in the middle of it was their cemetery. And in the cemetery, at all times, they had an open grave. So three times a day, from worship to lunch, you had to walk past a cemetery with an open grave. And what's the point? The point is, you might be next. That's the what. What happens when we die? You have to figure out that question. My encouragement to you is to consider the what if to the what. What if Jesus, as Paul calls him at the resurrection, the first fruits which means what happens to him happens to us. What if, because Jesus rose from the dead, that one day we too will get a stunning new body that's physical, can eat fish and bread on a beach with friends, but is also mysteriously different in that it's not bound by time and even not bound by certain spatial qualities in the sense that Jesus could appear within locked rooms. What if we because of Jesus being the first fruits, are promised a physical body like that that's outfitted for the new heavens and the new earth. What if? What if Jesus is the pioneer resurrection man who walks into the tomb and out the other side and turns around and says, follow me? What if Jesus promises us a joy in his presence that is so stunning that if we saw just a glimpse of it now, we'd come undone? What if? The resurrection speaks to our past and says, your sins are forgiven and my love's coming after you. And the resurrection speaks to our future to say, no matter what happens in the end and how you die, and your grave will be empty and you will be dancing with me in the new earth. And what if, thirdly, the resurrection speaks to our present And promises us a king's march. Look again at verse 7. 
It says that Jesus is going ahead of you into Galilee. That word, going ahead, one word in the original language. It's not just a sequential word or a temporal word that means Jesus is a fast walker or he's going to leave before you do and get there before you do. No, this is a word that describes a walk. This is a word used in other contexts to speak of a general leading soldiers out onto the battlefield. This is a word that would describe in our day, like in a sports venue, the captains leading the team out onto the court. This is a word that speaks of a king's walk of mission. Jesus is going on mission to Galilee to restore Peter and to continue the walk that will bring the kingdom of God to this Earth. You know, we're used to kings walking. We're used to kings dying. Remember a few years ago, they found the bones of Richard III under a parking lot in Great Britain, 1400s old bones. Uh, uh, I was reading a few years ago the biography of Millard Fillmore, who would become president, but at the time was Secretary of State under Andrew Jackson, and I uh, told the story about Mount Vernon had become very run down at that point in time, and even George Washington's grave had been, to, had been broken into, and they fired the, the uh, garden keeper, and the garden keeper, to take revenge, stole the skull of George Washington. Well, they figured all that out, but what they decided to do was take the bones of Washington and put them in a marble sepulcher and put them on display in Mount Vernon. And tens of thousands of people in the 1830s, a low point in American history, especially economically, they got some strange encouragement from seeing the sepulcher of George Washington. We, we're used to kings dying. We can cope with that. But how do you cope with a king who dies and comes back to life and brings the future into the present in the middle of history, to create a whole new world, and then looks at you and I and says, let's fix this. That is a resurrection joy that can make us the most powerful force in history. When we follow the king's march and hear his voice and carry his joy. It's what happened in the early church. I mean, think about it. Early on, even though they'd seen the resurrection of Jesus, they were in a room huddled up. Because nothing in the outside world appeared to change. Rome still occupied Palestine. The religious authorities are still coming after them and would end up killing most of the people in that room. Death and evil still reign. But when the shock wore off and the joy moved in, the joy that says, if this could happen with Jesus, could everything sad come untrue? When that joy settles deep within you, and you join the king's march, well, here we are, 2,000 years later, joining Jesus and his message to us, let's fix this. What does that resurrection joy look like when it settles deeply? I just want to I couldn't say it any better than Fleming Rutledge, a great pastor in New York City. Uh, I want to say it as kind of a prayer over you. So if it's okay with you, or if it's not, I'm still going to do it. I'm going to lift my hand over you and pray this resurrection joy over you here in the room, over you at home. When the resurrection settles deeply in us, it produces joy 
that impacts the world. And here's what it looks like, and may it look like. Resurrection means that God's power has come upon us that is able to make a new creation out of people like us, stones like us, people who have no capacity to save ourselves. May the resurrection mean that you and I are being changed and am changed. It means that we Christians are to be weaned away from our possessions and oriented toward being everlastingly possessed by the love of God. It means that we will become less and less interested in receiving personal blessings for ourselves and more and more interested in making Christian hope known to the nations and especially those who sit in darkness. It means that we will become more and more thankful as we become less and less self-righteous. It means that we will gradually become less preoccupied with our own privileges and prerogatives and gradually see ourselves more and more in solidarity with other human beings who, like us, can receive mercy only from the hand of God and not because of any superiority. These changes will have political consequences as well as individual ones. Repentance will mean seeking after the good of all not just the comforts of a few. And the knowledge of the coming Lord Jesus means there will be hope in the light of His power, of His intervention in the affairs of nations, that the efforts of the peacemakers will somehow miraculously be blessed. We rejoice in the love of the Father. We rejoice in the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Let's proclaim it in song.